Welcome back to the best of 2020 in review at Keeping It Real. Now we have an excerpt from the episode of Wim Hof, The Iceman. Is he superhuman? Listen up and learn more. Not only to all the great feats this man has committed in his life to put him in the Guinness Book of World Records, but also learn how he does it so you can be a bit more superhuman yourself. All right? A real life superhero. The first time I heard about him, I really could not believe that he was real. He holds 26 official Guinness World Records for feats that were long believed to be fatal or just outright impossible. He's run a half marathon above the Arctic Circle barefoot. He's remained completely submerged in ice for nearly two hours, and he climbed Mount Everest wearing only shorts. He's also hung more than a mile off the ground by a single finger, run an entire marathon in the Namib Desert without drinking a single drop of water, and swam underneath the ice of a frozen ocean for almost the entire length of a football field on a single breath. His radical demonstrations of what the human animal is truly capable of have garnered him devotees and skeptics in equal measure, but he has systematically silenced the naysayers by subjecting himself to the rigors of science. He has allowed himself to be poked, prodded, and probed during his insane feats, and in one experiment even allowed himself to be injected with an endotoxin to prove through conscious action he could mobilize his immune system to neutralize the threat, which is exactly what he did. And when people tried to dismiss him as a genetic freak who was simply beyond the rest of us, he taught 12 more people to do exactly what he did, and they all got the exact same results. The man who can raise his core body temperature while submerged in an ice bath, Wim Hof. A real-life superhero? Could it be true? Well, he seems to be a superhero to all of us, but Wim Hof claims that he can train anybody to do the same things that he can do. The feats that he has performed, he has actually trained certain people to go through, like the injection with E. coli bacteria. Well, he passed that with flying colors without getting infected and trained 12 other people to do it. I don't remember what the time frame was, but they did the same exact um scientific study being injected with the E. coli bacteria and their immune system fought it off. Pretty amazing. Okay, and this is through his breathing techniques and mind control, but what about the feats that he does with cold? That's amazing as well. Um, The cold has great benefits. Um, Heat and cold both do. Heat shock proteins, cold shock proteins being released during extremities of either one, saunas, cryo, ice baths. High achievers, high performers greatly believe in and know that the cold is a great equalizer. It's a great performance enhancement. It is a form of cheating. Not really. But it is a way of accessing different states of mind higher states of mind, releasing endorphins from your brain to flush throughout your body to make you feel good. I mean, you've heard of the runner's high, and I'm sure everybody's experienced 
these kind of endorphins rushing over them when they feel good during certain periods of their life. Um, above and beyond that, there's other things that it can improve, like your immune function. It can increase fat loss, partially by increasing the uh, hormone adiponectin. Of course, it's also going to increase your metabolism. It will speed up to regulate your body temperature, to raise it, because you're down at sub-temperatures where your body needs to warm back up to its 98-degree threshold it likes to stay at. Well, of course, that's going to be a high-calorie burner right there. So you could burn fat, of course, doing this on a regular basis as well. Um, Me personally, I have never really done ice baths, but I have done cryotherapy where you go into a tube for three minutes at negative 250 to 280, and it sounds impossible, but it's not. Um, If you've done it, you know it feels fantastic. It cures lots of ailments. I shouldn't say cure. It doesn't cure an ailment. Let's say it helps ailments. Like I have a bad back, a bad knee, and I get inflammation in my body built up. If I go do three minutes of cryo, I walk out feeling like a million bucks. The inflammation disappears. And the endorphin rush, the flood of good neurohormones that just washes over my brain and just makes me feel oh so good when you walk out. It's freaking amazing. And if you haven't tried it, all I can tell you is go do it. Don't be a chicken shit. I can understand if you're scared, especially when I just said negative 250 to 280. That is like death to most people. There's no way. I would not get in that tube. I will die. You will not die. And you will be monitored during the process. So if you do get too cold, you can just simply jump out or tell the person in the room to turn the machine off. Another way to start out, a little simpler here, you can start with doing cold showers. That's tough for a lot of people. Just flip it all the way to cold While you're standing in the shower, it's shocking. It'll make you jump. I mean, that's happened to all of us before when we had our hot water go out at the house or something of that sort where you didn't expect it and you you got into the shower and it was cold water. Okay? It wasn't planned on. It happened. But bam, it makes you move. Your, Your body goes into survival mode. You jump. You hurry and get out of the water this is where learning to control your breathing and your mind can allow you to stay in the cold and gain the benefit of the cold all the various benefits i just listed from ice baths and cryo can be experienced from cold showers just as well um It's just not as intense, of course, because the temperature cannot get as low with your shower. So it's one way to start thinking about edging into it. You could just try doing this a couple times a week or, you know, some people have habits where they do this every single day. They'll take their regular shower and then at the end for one minute, they'll flip it over to cold, breathe through it, maybe box breathing, four seconds, In, four seconds hold, four seconds out, four seconds hold, 
that's one way of doing it. Um, Wim Hof is keen on some different types of breathing, but there's many different forms. I'll cover some more on his exact ways of doing the, the breathing technique, the Wim Hof method style, a little bit later on here. Okay, let's go over some of the cool facts that I've learned about Wim Hof, the superhuman that many people don't even know. This is some interesting stuff. I mean, one thing is his diet. You'd think a superhuman of his caliber would have some special food preparation, diet regimen, however many meals a day it is. What kind of food are you eating? What are you drinking? Blah, blah, blah. There's nothing special about Wim Hof's diet. He's simple. He actually just does intermittent fasting, which means for most of the day, he does not eat. Around 6 p.m. every day is when he enjoys his one meal of the day. He eats whatever he wants. And if you see what kind of shape he's in, that's kind of fascinating. But the man is very physically fit. He doesn't just sit on his ass. These techniques that he does, also in the cold and breathing techniques and whatnot, all this stuff that he does, uh, he's big into yoga. So, I mean, he's burning a lot of calories doing the things that he does. I guess he can get away with eating a little bit of some junky foods and having some beer, as he admits to. That short intro at the beginning covered a pretty good bit of his uh, feats that he's accomplished, and I don't need to go over all of his 26 Guinness World Records. He did raise his four children alone. The love of his life he was wanting to be with forever, of course, suffered some severe mental issues she never could reconcile. She committed suicide jumping from a building. So he raised his four children by himself. This is interesting. He said on Joe Rogan, he would allow himself to be injected with malaria for research purposes. Uh, he, of course, already did the project like this with the E. coli bacteria. I wonder if someone will ever take him up on the challenge. He's certainly down for it. Now, this here is a very funny story. <laughs> Wim suffered an injury, a severe injury, that his son Michael took him to the ER for. He had sat on the city spout of this fountain that he would get in during the wintertime in Amsterdam when he traveled there. Obviously, he had done this before. He didn't know the city upgraded the power of the spout a few weeks before he decided to sit on it. I guess he was trying to give himself an enema or something. <laughs> but listen, anyways, the spout comes on with him sitting on it not knowing the upgrade in the power it cut through his colon and intestines like a water knife ow can you imagine how freaking painful that was so this was a little gem I uncovered this funny story it's terrible for him I'm so glad he made it through it obviously but hell it might have killed anybody else he does have this amazing mind control and pain tolerance. That's something that helped him, I'm sure. The hospital he went to did not triage him immediately to surgery because of the fact that he was not showing any severe signs of pain or discomfort. 
He seemed okay. After a few hours, he fainted. Helping the doctors realize just how serious that this actually was. It's probably internal bleeding that he was dealing with. So the doctors stitched him up. They feared that he would have sepsis. Blood poisoning is what sepsis is from loose fecal matter in his system. Well, Wim Hof refused antibiotics. He doesn't like medicine. He had a long recovery with all that had to be stitched up. He has a scar over his belly button now, which you can see. But he got through the surgery perfectly fine without the antibiotics. I'm sure it's because he's an amazing superhuman once again. Ah, here's one for the ladies. Wim can control his erections. <laughs> what a superpower that is. So one day, a girl tried seducing him while he was naked doing his yoga. I guess he does naked yoga on a regular basis with ladies around him. I don't know the full story there. Uh, speaking on his mind, he says... No one can distract me. I am completely in control. So, if he wanted to get a heart on, he would have. He was focusing at the moment. So that is a, a neat superpower. He ran a full marathon without training or water in a desert. I think this was actually mentioned at the very beginning, but I'm not sure. That is... Uh, suicidal, I'd say. Not to Wim. Wim doesn't need psychedelics because he can trigger his pineal gland. Now, your pineal gland can control DMT release. DMT is a very powerful psychedelic. He claims all the best pharmaceuticals your body can make if you learn to control the release of them, which would explain why he didn't need antibiotics after that injury he suffered on the fountain, the water knife cutting through his ass and intestines. <laughs> and of course, the E. coli bacteria infection that he was injected with and fought off simply breathing techniques and through mind control. There must be something to this. He obviously can control certain releases of chemicals and things in his body at will. So he says, don't take drugs. Get high on your own supply. That's a whim quote. Okay, and here is a supremely important point. Wim has an identical biologic twin. His twin cannot do any of his amazing feats. This is proof. It's not genetics. Wim has spent his life mastering all of the powers that he possesses. Everything that he does is simply because he learned it. He threw himself into learning mind control, meditation, breathing techniques, 
exposure to cold, all these different methods that he has and compiled them into this super mass, this, this, this man that we call Wim Hof that is seemingly untouchable. If you ever listen to any interviews with this guy, he's just boisterous. He's full of energy and love, and he wants to share that with everyone. His attitude is so freaking awesome. And all these things that I'm sharing with you, you know, the, of course, the, the some of the funny stories and some of these things you didn't know about him. Um, I'm talking about his techniques. All of his techniques and everything that he has learned are things that he wants to share with you. Now, I would recommend highly if you find Wim Hof an interesting character that you look him up. And if you've got a cell phone, which I'm just imagining most people do, download his application. He has a free app. WHM, Wim Hof Method. That's the app. Get that? It's got a lot of free things you can do on there, like breath work, learn. You can learn these things, man. Seriously, and it's free. Now, there is... uh, Things you can pay for if you want to upgrade and go to more serious training levels in his Wim Hof method. But with the free method alone, you can try out his breathing techniques and learn some things that could make your life better. Could make you just a bit more superhuman. And who doesn't want to be more of a superhuman? I do. That's why I downloaded it. I want to learn from the people that are like this. I want to deconstruct what makes these people tick. He's an amazing man. Just from listening to loads and loads of his interviews, I've gathered some info. So I'll pass it along. Training through the cold and breathing, this has an effect on multiple things, which I've kind of obviously already thrown out to you. Number one, you're going to learn self-control. If it's cold, most people say, fuck this, and they're out. They run. Or they're mentally defeated before they even try it. Mentally, going into these areas, you can learn to shut your brain up. The monkey mind is rattling all the time. It's like somebody fired off a bullet in there, and it's just ricocheting around. All these thoughts and everything going on. I mean, this is a way to learn to shut it up. You can focus on your breathing and it can take your mind away from your thinking. Just think about every breath you take in and out. And this, of course, the breathing techniques that he has, it controls your blood flow, your life force. And that allows you to alkalize the pH of your blood, which is very important. Being acidic is normal these days, and it's an invitation for diseases and stress. You can learn to tap into the deepest parts of your DNA if you master some of this guy's stuff. He says Westerners have fucked it all up. And that's a quote I pretty much could agree with. Where we now are so easily susceptible to most diseases... You could be stronger by using his techniques. And right now, during this era that we're in of pandemic, COVID, do we not need a stronger immune system? 
Well, hell yeah, we do. So it's not just like he's speaking of meditation and sitting still, doing meditation and the breathing. He wants you to be fully alive, full of power, so you can complete your life's mission. Not stressed, anxious, and weak, like a little baby. You understand? That's what he's trying to help you with. I love this. He says it's like when you fall in love. You don't have to think about it. You just fly. He wants to teach everybody his techniques so they fall in love with life. So you can fly through life without the stress, the anxiety, and the weakness. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. Thank you, Wim. How about some more of Wim Hof's amazing feats? Uh, Not too long ago in New York on stage, Wim was put to the test once again. This time in a different way. An infrared heat sensing camera was brought forward to the stage. He was asked, can you raise the heat in your hand at will? Challenge accepted. He has been monitored uh, under similar circumstances when he was submerged in ice by one of these infrared heat sensing cameras. But this is different. They're asking him to do this on the spot right here in front of a crowd in one specific spot, his hand. So the camera's on his hand, 60 seconds. He raises his hand 12 degrees. How? How in the hell does he do it? It's it's unbelievable. Our stress mechanisms, we should not have any control over. The hypothalamus and the limbic system, again, somehow, Wim does. He's learned to go into the depths of his mind and subconscious, again, sounding impossible. He just claims that the training forces you to gain control over these faculties. If we all had this ability, stress would not cause us problems, heart attacks, anxiety, depression, addiction, etc., etc. Plus, the pharmaceutical companies would be very upset. You can imagine those motherfuckers not taking our drugs. So, we would have resistance to stressors and be able to remain at peace. Your brain says, it's too cold, or we can't pay our bills, or my wife is leaving, it's going to be a divorce. But you're the captain, and you reply, no, we are good. We are fine. Everything is okay. This is what Wim claims to do. So you control the mind instead of the mind controlling you. That is the difference in the way Wim operates compared to your average human being. And this is not a visualization technique. He was asked this. He doesn't imagine that he is on a beach or uh, like on the stage, his hand is on fire. It's, It's not a visualization thing that causes this to happen. He just says, let go of control. He owns his mind, his intuition, 
He's at peace and he trusts his body to do what he needs and what he asks asks of it. And this is his trust that he has. That's the explanation. That's his explanation. And who are we to doubt him? The part of Wim's brain that lights up when he has done brain scans shows that he can control the portion that releases cannabinoids and opioids naturally from the brain. Scientists are dumbfounded by this because it's absolutely supposed to be impossible. I mean, can you imagine releasing serotonin, dopamine, GABA, adrenaline, any hormone needed on demand? This is why he's always saying... Get high on your own supply. I've noticed just watching video of Wim Hof and even listening to some of the audio, he is always seemingly doing intentional breathing. It's very interesting. It's like it's such a big part of his life controlling his breathing that he does it all the time. If he's not in the middle of conversating and opening his mouth, he will be quietly sitting there, and you can notice, if you'll watch some of his videos, the intentional breath work that he's doing as he sits waiting to make a response. For some of you guys and girls that are athletes, this is a very interesting proposition. The Wim Hof breathing technique... I mentioned earlier, makes the body alkaline, neutralizing the acidic nature of your blood. So your body in a more alkaline state will be able to perform better. You will not fatigue as quickly. He's trained athletes in these breathing techniques to use them before a performance. So keep that in mind. I'm going to go over the technique with you, and you can use it before performance, before going to the gym, before an anxious situation you may be coming into, because that's another thing it does, is lower anxiety and stressed feelings. So, multiple uses for this, and of course, if you're not facing any of these intense situations like training or giving a speech in front of a crowd, or something of that nature, you're doing it for the simple reason you want to alkalize your body, increase your oxygen absorption and carrying capacity in the bloodstream, and lower that acidic nature of the body that is bad. You want to cleanse your body, your blood, your lymphatic system, And the breathing can help in all of these situations. Let's go over the breathing technique. Of course, when you do his breathing technique, you want to be sitting or laying down. Don't be standing up because you actually can get lightheaded and pass out. And this has happened to some people before. Hence the warning. Do not do this in a dangerous situation. Go, don't go do Wim Hof breathing technique standing on top of your roof because you may never wake up. 
you might have fallen off and broken your neck or something. So, of course, refrain from being a freaking moron and doing this in the wrong position. Okay, you will do 30 to 50 repetitions. Decide before you start the breathing exercise. It begins with a max inhale, raising your chest, breathing fully in, and then letting go. Exhaling, not blowing all of your air out, but just letting go and exhaling. And then again, a max inhale, raise your chest, breathe fully in, and then let it go. Similar to that, if you could hear me, hopefully you could. If you're doing it correctly, you'll feel kind of loose, maybe tingly, mild lightheadedness. This is all normal. It's the extra oxygen coursing through your veins as you're doing this procedure. At the end of the 30 or 50 rep cycle that you have chosen, the last breath you will pull in and at the height, hold your breath for as long as you can. You will notice you should have a higher tolerance. Normally, when you would panic and start gasping for breath, you will be able to stay calm much, much longer. And the more you do this practice, the longer you will be able to hold your breath on that last pause. This is not magic. This is something that holds true to most things in life. The more you practice it, the better you get at it. And the great thing is you get improved health benefits from continuously doing the regimen training, doing the breathing, make it a daily habit. It could be something you do multiple times a day, as Wim does. The best analogy I can give you is similar to working out. You don't go to the gym one day and do bicep curls and expect to be seeing a big difference in the shape or the strength that you have. But if you go every week and do it, then in six months, there's going to be an extremely big difference in the size, the shape, and the strength of the muscle. That's the best analogy I can give you for this breathing technique. Do it and receive the benefits in greater and greater quantities by repeating it often. Dude, that guy is a superhuman for sure. Use his techniques to lower your anxiety, to lower your stress, to increase your oxygen intake, and to raise the pH value of your blood, to increase the quality of your life. Why not? This guy has done it to the extreme. You can incorporate some of his techniques just on a minimal basis. Every once in a while, every couple days. Take the cold showers, find a way to get into a um, cryo unit or taking an ice bath if you're really insane. But do the breathing techniques. Definitely do those. Man, 
you will feel the difference after one round. Trust me. Now we're moving on to someone a little bit more evil. Not really, literally. David Goggins is not an evil man, but his mindset is unbreakable. Many consider him the toughest man on the face of the earth for a reason. He's unbreakable. His mindset, you can't break the dude. You can't stop the dude. Once he has his eyes set on a prize, whatever he's focused on, his intensity is at full max and he will not stop. He will not quit even if his body tells him to. Listen and learn how he does what he does. The Beast, I like to call David Goggins, is a phenomenal man who is a retired Navy SEAL. He's 45 years old now. And he has had a phenomenal career in the military. But besides that, his accomplishments and who he is, is hands down one of the toughest son of a bitches I have ever reviewed in my life. And many would agree, probably a lot would call him the toughest man in the world. Let's go over a small list of Mr. Goggins' impressive accomplishments. I can't list them all, but I can sure give you a general idea of what he has accomplished so you can drop your jaw in amazement like I did. All right. He is the only member of the United States Armed Forces to complete Navy SEALs training, including three hell weeks to get there. Two times he had to repeat the Hell Week, obviously, because he was disqualified for injuries or being sick. He had pneumonia. But that didn't stop him. He still completed the Hell Weeks. He just didn't pass their uh, criteria. Without being injured and without being sick the third time, he still made it through it, but with flying colors, he passed the bar. He's also completed U.S. Army Ranger School and Air Force Tactical Air Controller Training. He was also in live combat in Iraq. Weighing in at around 300 pounds, he attempted to enroll in Navy SEALs training. The recruiter told David he had three months to lose 100 pounds and there's no way he would make it. Well, guess what? In less than three months, he was back in front of that recruiter weighing 190 pounds in less than three months, folks. David has competed in over 60 ultra triathlons and ultra marathons. His longest race is 320 miles. Yeah. He averages around fifth place, but regularly makes top three. He also plays first at many of these competitions. Phenomenal. In 2013, Mr. Goggins set the Guinness World Records for chin-ups, completing 4,030 pull-ups in 17 hours. And in the process, he made his hands into roast beef. No problem for Mr. Goggins. What doesn't kill this man seriously makes him stronger. Goggins wakes up every day and runs 10 to 15 miles before he starts his day, and that's at 3 o'clock in the morning. Motivation is not what Goggins believes in at all. It's fleeting, he says. 
he bases his decisions on drive and the 40% rule, which he has made up himself. But I'll tell you more on that later because it's a phenomenal rule. Great one to base your life off of if you don't want to be a big fat pussy. All right. Goggins has had some injuries being this hardcore and also just some bad luck. He started life with some setbacks that he had to overcome as well. As a child, he survived his father's constant mental and physical abuse, not only to him, but his mother as well. His town was full of bigotry, which was continuously aimed at him. The Ku Klux Klan had events, rallies. They were in parades in his town. His first car he got had nigger spray painted across it. That's what this man had to fight against. Yes, he's a man of color, if you didn't know that already. He overcame a stutter, obesity, and of course he had crushingly low self-esteem. Didn't help that his dad treated him like a dog and beat him all the time, and then kids at school were picking on him constantly. As a grown-up, his kidneys have shut down on him because he ran too many miles pissed blood from that incident and shit himself. Wonderful. Oh, and and during that run, he also broke all the metatarsals in his foot, fractured them. Um, he has had four knee operations, hamstring surgery, appendix surgery, 25 foot operations because of all this running he does. Yeah. Only in 2010, after most of the amazing achievements that he has accomplished that I've listed off so far, he found out he had a congenital heart defect, ASD, or considered a hole in your heart. His was only functioning at 75%. 75% capacity for all this time that he achieved all this shit. His heart was not even like yours and mine at 100%. That did not stop this man. That's how sensational and phenomenal a human being Mr. David Goggins is. What would it be like to live life with no excuses, completely giving 100%? Goggins' life story and philosophies can give us some insight on that possibility. Let's hear more about Mr. Goggins' childhood from his own mouth. This is an interview Goggins had with Joe Rogan. It's a long process. Right. Um, I, my dad beat the shit out of me when I was growing up. We, I, I was the first black baby born in this hospital called Miller Fillmore in Buffalo, New York. My dad owned skating rinks. He owned bars. He ran prostitutes from Canada to Buffalo, New York. My dad was a big-time pimp, big-time anything bad about a person, big-time hustler. He was American. You know that that movie with um, Denzel Washington? Mm -hmm. He was that, but not that bad. Right. You know, he wasn't that big. But that's what it reminds me of. He was that kind of guy. And um, beat the shit out of me, beat the shit out, you know, out of my mom. There was an incident one time when my mom got knocked out on top of the stairs, and he drug her down the stairs by her hair. And at six years old, um, I'll never forget this. In my mind, I, I was always afraid. My whole life, I was afraid. But I had this fucking voice, this this conscience, that would always be battling me, saying, hey, you got to get up and do something. I didn't want to do shit. You know, I was just afraid. But I would that, that voice would force me to get up 
and my dad, you know, I try to beat him up, whatever, at six, and I get my ass kicked. So this went on for several years, and I have a big time learning disability. Okay, my dad didn't believe in us going to school. So my dad, it was about the business, the skating rink and the bar. So the skating rink opened about 7 o'clock at night, and this is when, the time I was able to walk. So about, five, you know, four, five, six years old, eight, nine, and I go to the you know, skating rink at 7 o'clock at night, and I worked the skating rink until 10 at night. And then we would scrape the gum off the floors, and we cleaned the whole skating rink up. And then my dad had an office, and my brother and myself would sleep in the office. My mom would go upstairs and work the bar until 3 o'clock in the morning. And then they cleaned the bar up. So after all that shit was done with, going to school rarely happened. So when I went to school, I was all kind of, you know, my, my learning disability. I had social anxiety. I was just a jacked up kid from living in this tortured home. From the outside looking in, we lived in an all-white neighborhood, and then we would travel to the ghetto of Buffalo, New York, where the skating rink was at. So we, you know, we worked around mostly blacks, and I lived around mostly whites, but no one knew what was going on in that house at, on 201 Paradise Road. You know, it's crazy. But um, my mom got courage to finally leave him when I was about eight years old. We moved to a small town in Brazil, Indiana, and that's when the real war started for me. And Brazil, Indiana is a small town. Great people, a lot of great people. And I say that because a lot of people get offended. And, and I'm, I'm going to get to the point where they get offended. There was about maybe 10 black families at about 10,000 people in the town. And in 1995, the KKK marched in the 4th of July parade. So this was a, not everybody was racist. There was a lot of good people. Some of the best people I knew was there, but there was also a lot of racism there. So me being one of the few black kids in that, you know, in that area, you know, it, it kind of haunts you. I had stuff on my notebook, you know, nigga, we're going to kill you on my Spanish notebook. They had that on my car, nigga, we're going to kill you. This is early 90s. And um, so even though I showed it didn't hurt me, it was jacking me up. So all the insecurities I had when I was a kid with my father, I've moved into this area here, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And it shit haunted me. And that voice that I talked about, it kept talking louder and louder and louder, but I was doing nothing about it. And I decided to make moves. And I cheated all through school. And it's, it's kind of humbling to talk about my story sometimes, and it's, um, it's, it's also embarrassing. But um, it's real. It's who the fuck I am. It's, it's, it's what I am. It's, it's, it's what created me. And copy from the fourth grade to, the, to, to my junior year in high school on every assignment. So in Goggins' late teens, he locked on to something positive to aim for, the U.S. Air Force. So he buckled down and he learned how to read. He got in good physical shape and then he went to a recruiter's office and he got accepted. His aim was to specialize in pararescue that was uh, parachuting into war zones or enemy territory to rescue down pilots. David had an extremely difficult test upcoming, though. Swimming. Yes. Not only did he not know how to swim, he was fucking terrified of the water. He eventually found a way out. A routine medical exam picked up sickle cell anemia, a blood disease. He could have pressed on, but this was a reasonable excuse to quit. And he was scared shitless of drowning in the water. He couldn't swim. His buoyancy, he just never figured out how to do this. He knew he should stay, but he let fear get the best of him. 
and he used that excuse to bail out, see his commanding officer, and quit. By 1999, his military dreams seemed vanquished. He started working as an exterminator. Yes, pest control, killing cockroaches and rodents. What a shitty fucking job. He made around $1,000 a month, and he was working late nights. It was a dead-end job, going nowhere. Goggins began using food to numb his pains, all the pains that emotionally plagued him. His horrible diet was popping donuts like Tic Tacs and drinking milkshakes. This ballooned him up to 300 pounds. But food at the time was his coping mechanism for all his disappointments in life. One day after Goggins got home from work, he flipped on the TV while he was downing a chocolate milkshake and eating some junk food. A documentary had came on. It was about the Navy SEALs. He was glued to the television. Could this be a way to make a man out of himself? He saw these men as heroes, as warriors. If anything could get him past his fears and make him a hard human being, it was SEAL training. It was Hell Week. Goggins became hooked on this idea. There was one program Goggins found that allowed ex-military to qualify for the SEALs training when he called. But it was being discontinued in less than three months, so he had to act fast. But to qualify, he had to be 191 pounds. Well, that's a big problem when you're weighing near 300. So he devised a grueling workout schedule of running, biking, lifting weights over and over, only stopping to eat or sleep. He was obsessed with his dream. Well, guess what? He did drop over 100 pounds in less than three months. Going back and seeing the recruiter, he had made the cut. Now he was off for the most intense, grueling training in the military. The full SEALs training is called BUDS, but the most famous is known as Hell Week. Goggins had done three because of injuries and pneumonia in one single year. Never done before. So Goggins became one of the elite, a Navy SEAL. Goggins made some close friends in the Navy SEALs. Unfortunately, some of those friends died in a mission gone wrong. This made Goggins want to raise money for the families left behind through doing charity. This is what started his running career. He selected an ultramarathon for his first run. It's what he came up with. It was the only thing he could think of, and he went for it. The promoter said Goggins needed to qualify by running at least 100 miles in 24 hours. You're not just allowed to say, hey, I want to jump in. I want to do this. They wouldn't do this. This was an ultramarathon. This was one of the most grueling, devastating freaking runs of all the ultramarathons you can run. Maybe the hardest run in the world that you can do. The bad water. But that's the one David picked because he likes doing hard shit. Remember, 
Goggins at this point had never even trained to run a marathon, which is 26.22 miles. And to qualify for the event, he had to run 100 miles in 24 hours. Now, just think if you would do that. Right now, would you get up and go out your door and run 100 miles with no fucking training? That's absolutely insane. This qualifying event would show just how hard this dude really is. The biggest pain of his life was coming up. That was this 100-mile trial, the San Diego one day. I, I, even though people don't understand it, I had to do what I had to do. And, you know, and I did it. Like, I didn't tell you how I got into ultra running. You know, there's a lot of things that, so I, I, I pushed it extremely hard. I, I went way beyond what I thought was capable. Like my first ultra race I did, I was, uh, I was heavier. I was in Iraq, you know, the Marcus Attrell lone mm-hmm. survivor. I was in Bud's. I was in three hell weeks, as you know, as I said a million times. And I knew a lot of guys that died in the operation. And I was at free fall school with Morgan Luttrell, who's his twin brother during the operation Red Wings, where Marcus Luttrell's lone survivor. I knew Marcus Luttrell well, and I was about 200-some-odd pounds, and I didn't run Harley Doll at this time. I, I was a SEAL, but I was like a bodybuilder. And I did an elliptical trainer 20 minutes on Sunday. That's all I did. That's all I did. I fuck that cardio stuff. I'm a, I, I was never about it until this happened. So that happened, and I was like, man, I got to find a way to raise money for these families. So I Googled the. I, I, I found a foundation, Special Operations Warrior Foundation, and I Googled the 10 hardest races in the world. I knew nothing about ultra running. The first I'd ever run was 20 miles at one time. And so what came up was the Bad Water 135, 135-mile run through Death Valley in the summertime. I thought it was a fucking stage race. I didn't know people can run 135 miles at one time. I had no idea it was even possible. What do you mean a stage race? Where you run like 20 miles, oh, camp stages. out, and then run 20 more until you get 135 miles. Right. So I went to Ultra Runner. Didn't know what Ultra Runner was. I called the race director up, Chris Kosman of the Badwater. And he said, are you an Ultra Runner? And I was like, I don't know what that is. He goes, have you run 100 miles in 24 hours or less? I was like, no. But I said, I'm a Navy SEAL. I was in three hell weeks. I was a ranger. I gave him some resume. He didn't give a shit. He said, I don't care. You got to qualify for my race. And the deadline was up in two months for this bad water race. And basically, he said, there's two more races you can do to qualify. And I might consider you my race. We select top 90 athletes in the world. And you're not even an ultra runner. But I, I like your cause. I like what you're doing. He said, uh, I call him up on a Wednesday. <laughs> and he goes, there's a race on Saturday. In San Diego, San Diego one day, where you run around a one-mile track for 24 hours, so many miles you can get. If you get 124 hours, I will consider you in my race. I did the math, 14-some-minute mile, fuck it, I can do that. Dumb shit thinking, I'll tell you that right now. It was rough. First pain I've been in my entire life was this race. So I have my wife at the time, she's now my ex-wife. We go to Walmart, get a blue lawn chair, Ritz crackers, and mile plex. That's what I'm going to have for a 100-mile run. So, show up at the start line of this race. It was the AUA National Championships. It's like the best ultra runners compete against each other to see how many miles you can get in 24 hours. And I'm this big bodybuilder-looking guy. With how much did you weigh back then? I would say I was at least 230, 
at least it may have been more than jacked. Yeah, I, yeah, I was ripped the fuck up. I was I, big old chest. I was big. I, I was I was jacked up. There's a picture of me. You definitely didn't look like someone who could run a hundred miles. No, not at all. So basically, I start running, and I get to about mile forty, mile fifty, and I'm feeling pretty good. I get to mile seventy, and it was a, the the worst pain in my life. I sat down in this blue lawn chair at mile seventy. And my the Ritz crackers after mile twenty became Ritz cracker balls. I wasn't hydrating correctly. I didn't know what to do. I was drinking Mileplex for my nutrition because I couldn't eat these Ritz crackers. Had very minimal water, if any at all, and I was just dying. So I sat down in this blue lawn chair as I was watching all these runners go around in this circle. I was all dizzy and lightheaded. Hadn't gone to the bathroom. It's been about twelve hours. I went seventy miles in about twelve hours, which is good. And I looked at my ex-wife now, and I was like. I am fucked. And I started seeing like three of her. And once my body stopped, my mind just went off. And I had to go to the bathroom. And the bathroom was like, it's like 20 feet away from me, if that. And I couldn't. And so I sat there and peed blood down my leg and started crapping up my back. And with 30 miles to go, I and my feet were broken. I was just in the worst shape. Because once you stop running, not running like that, I mean, I hadn't run in almost a year. I was just doing bodybuilding stuff in 20 minutes on the elliptical trainer. No and running at all. I probably ran no shit, no shit, no more than 50 miles the whole year. <laughs> that wasn't my thing. I wanted to be like jacked. You know, I, right. I, I, I didn't want to be cardio guy. I wanted to be ripped, big Navy SEAL guy. And, um, and the day before this race, it's funny, this guy named Joe Burns who put me through my hell weeks, a SEAL guy, he's one of the hardest guys out there. He was in the gym the Friday before I did this race, and he was doing a full body squats, deadlifts, power cleans. I said, fuck it, man. You know, he, he's the guy that approved me to do this race. He, you, know, he, you know, he gave me the approval to go do this race and signed off on it. So I'm in the gym. I went in there, did a full body, hardcore squats, deadlifts, and everything with this guy. Because I knew... He was going to come watch me in this race. So I've always been about, all right, man, you're going to see me come in here and jack this weight, and then tomorrow you can watch me do a 100-mile run. <laughs> what do you think about that? So <laughs> basically, I paid for it. So at my, so he came out there with my favorite thing, chocolate, you know, mini donuts, because he knew my story of, of, of my past life, and brought the six mini donuts out there, and I had my hat pulled down, and at mile 70, man, it was torturous. And with blood down my leg and 30 miles to go, I uh, started reaching the cookie jars, man. I started pulling off all kind of stuff. I reached in my mind. And a lot of us, when we have bad times in life, even the hardest person in the world, we forget how badass we are during that hard time. I have a thing where I take a couple seconds to reflect on, hang on, man, you've been through through this, you've been through that, you overcame this, overcame that. I don't ever close my mind to the fact that this can be done. And I knew I had to get up. I needed nutrition. I needed hydration. I needed to get, stop being dizzy. So that's the first thing I did. I didn't panic on I had 30 more miles to go to get 100. I thought about the process. Slowly but surely, I was able to stand up. And I was literally hobbling around this track. Just walking. No running at all. I couldn't run. My feet were in the worst pain. It's the worst pain I've been in my entire life. Nothing in any training is even comparable to this last 30 miles. And what happened was... My ex-wife looked at me and she's like, man, you're just, we, we agreed I'm not going to make the time. I was going way too slow. And at that time, at mile 81, something clicked. 
that I'll never probably be able to do again with my mind, body, spirit, soul, everything just connected. And my mind knew I wasn't fucking around anymore. It knew I wasn't going to quit. It knew that guy was dead and buried and gone. And I was going to die out here on this fucking Walmart for, for whatever reason why I was going to get through this motherfucker. I didn't give a damn. It made no, there, there was no fucking crowds. There was no trophy at the end. There was, I wasn't even in a race in my mind. There was, it was nothing. It wasn't about nothing. There was no nothing. It was a bunch of people who didn't know who the fuck I was. And it was me against me. And I used all these different dark places to start bringing out light and just fucking going deeper and deeper. Ended up running the next 20 miles. I ran 101 miles. And I ran the next 20 miles, ran at about a 1030 pace. And I did 101 miles in 18 hours and 56 minutes. Sat back down in that blue porta potty now, my chair that I got from Walmart. And that's when the body realized I was done. And this great feeling came over me, but also the worst pain in my life. I, that's when I took a humongous shit on myself. Literally, like I, like a fucking log up my fucking back. Pissed so much blood down. My, and my wife was, she was a nurse. And she was freaked out. I couldn't get up. I couldn't stand up. She backed this Camry on the knoll of the grassy area I was at. And we were both lifters at the time. So she was decently strong. I put my arms around her neck. She got me to the backseat of the car, let the windows down because I smelled like horrible shit. And I had this poncho on it because it was November in San Diego, so I'm sitting there jacking in the back of his car. And she was terrified. I need to get to the doctor. I need to get to the doctor. So I said, take me home. So we lived in the second story or, or the second deck of this uh, apartment complex in, in San Diego. I got to the first deck, so I, I, I get out of the car and I could stand up, but, but with my arms on her neck. So I was just leaning down because I was going to pass out. Got to the sec- or I got to the first deck, Went down. Just couldn't stand up anymore. Got around her neck. Worked up my way up the uh, railing. Got around my, you know, you know, got my arms around her neck again. Walked to the kitchen area, which is right in the front door. I was laying on the poncho liner. Crap was everywhere. I managed, she helped me manage to get into the to- into the tub. And it looked like dirt was coming out of my penis. This looked horrible. This just the grossest thing in the world. It's the worst pain I can ever, ever, ever be in in my life. And the craziest thing, I'll tell you a story because it's right now. I'm not sadistic. I'm not crazy. People may think that. They may, they may want to put a title on me after hearing me because it makes them feel better. Because they think, wow, this guy must be some special or just fucked up crazy dude. No. I'm a guy that came from nothing. Anybody's capable of doing shit like this. Anybody. And I sat in that tub. She put the water on me. She called my mom up. And my mom was dating a doctor at the time. The doctor, the doctor said, you need to get him to a hospital now. She came back in. All I want to do is call Chris Costner on the phone, the race director of Badwater, and said, I fucking did it. So she said, I'm taking it to the doctor. I said, no, let me sit here and enjoy this pain. She said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, I go, I need to go to the doctor. I realize that. But I never thought it was humanly possible to do what I did. I went 70 miles. And at 70 miles, I was dead. I was at 100%. What I thought, what I thought was a hundred percent. I went thirty. I went thirty-one more miles after being in the worst physical shape I've ever been in in my life. And all the, all that pain and suffering and thing was going through my fucking body as I sat in that tub and, and, and the waters hit me. It was the most amazing feeling of accomplishment. And I went to be numb. I didn't want people to give me drugs and to, and to numb this fucking pain. I wanted to. I did this. 
I over, as crazy as it sounds, it was the most amazing moment of my entire life to overcome such, to come from this kid who was mentally tortured himself and was tortured it's all to this kid, to this guy now, who was able to overcome such amazing odds and obstacles. And I called Chris Cosmo, the race director of Badwater, and he said, the idea of a 24-hour race is to run 24 hours. You only ran 19. And he put doubt in my mind that he would let me in the bad water. So a month later or so, about a month and a half later, I went to this race called the Hurt 100. It's a 100-mile race in Hawaii, 26,000 feet of climbing. That was all he said? That's all he said. <laughs> That's so crazy. He, I mean, he, he's a hardcore dude, but he right. didn't know how fucked up I was. Right. And he said, he didn't say, you know, he, like, he didn't say no, I'm not going to let you in. He put enough doubt in my mind and said, man, I got to do more. So... I was broken. I was broken bad. And like, how long did it take you to recover physically? The funniest thing about this, I don't tell the story very often. I had signed up for, I'm getting to that answer. It's right now. I went on deployment and me and my wife, my mom signed up for the first Las Vegas marathon down the strip of Las Vegas. And that incident happened. So I ran a hundred miles before I ran a, a marathon. Two weeks later, roughly, December 5th was this marathon that we all signed up for. I couldn't walk. I could not walk. I was fucked up. So 10 days or two weeks after this 100 mile in one race, I did um, this marathon, December 5th in Las Vegas. I said, you know, it's the first one. I can't run. Maybe I can walk with my mom. So I tried to go out to this little knoll around our grassy area in San Diego. I tried to run. Legs were broken. I said, fuck, I can't even. I'm jacked. Can't do shit. So I said, you know what? Maybe I'll watch you guys do the marathon and I'll cheer you guys on, whatever. And I said, I'll try to walk with my mom. December 5th happened. That gun went off. 2005, 14 days after, I broke myself off and I qualified for the Boston Marathon around 308. <laughs> That's crazy. And what's funny about it, I know people might hear this motherfucker, even when I tell you the story, I drop. I, I want to drop so many names. Google it. Look it up. I don't give a fuck. Like it almost seems like I'm making my own story up. It does. It almost seems like it to you. It, it does. Like, like, like when I tell it, if I were to hear somebody, like, let's say I listen to you know, listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. I heard some black dude from fucking Brazil and talking about uh, this happened. This happened. Three yo weeks. Ranger school. Ran hundred miles. Broke my feet. Broke my body. I'm like, this mother, he's the biggest fucking liar on the planet. Ain't nobody doing that shit. See, even when I tell my story, it almost sounds like um, some made-up shit. So, yeah, it sounds so later. crazy is you ran 100 miles before you ever ran a marathon. Right. Then you didn't run again at all, and you still qualified for the Boston Marathon. So you ran a 308 right. for the first marathon you ever did, ever did two weeks after you ran 100 miles right. with no training and nothing in between. So that's some crazy shit hearing that story. This guy is driven beyond what anyone in this world is that I personally know. How can you get a mindset like Mr. Goggins get insanely obsessed just to where you will not stop no matter what, no matter what the pain, no matter what the cost to follow through? How do you get a mindset like Goggins? So the answer to life's toughest problems or your greatest fears is not what most people want to hear. It's work ethic. That's Goggins' prescription. 
Face your fucking fears. Face your fucking problems. Do it over and over until you win. Defeat is not an option. Callous your mind like you would your hands by returning every day over and over until you succeed. Dig deep in your darkest moments. And remember any time that you have won before. And use that recall. Pull it up. Anytime you overcome adversity or an enemy, use it for strength or energy or for confidence when you have none. Do the hard things. Seek them out and destroy them. Don't accept mediocrity. Goggins says, fuck being comfortable. If you stay there one day, you will have tons of regret. All about who you could have been. What you could have done. Regrets. Nobody wants to live with regrets or die with them. David has a very special rule called the 40% rule. There's no scientific validity behind it, but his philosophy absolutely rings true to me, and I believe it will to you as well. So listen up, and here is... Goggins explaining his 40% rule for you to use yourself. I believe that most human beings are only living at about 40% of their capability. So the mind has a governor, like a car. If you're driving a car and the car has a governor on it, the car may say 130 miles an hour, but the governor set for 91. Once that governor sets in, you get to 91, that car starts doing this. The car wants to go. The car wants to go, but that factory said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going past 91. We have a factory, a nice governor in our brain, and it's a survival mechanism. It protects us from pain and suffering. The second we feel that, our mind says, oh, no, this isn't fun. We should back off. We should sit down, find something more comfortable. And there's something about the mind. The mind has a tactical advantage over you at all times. At all times of your life, the mind has a tactical advantage over you. Why is that? It knows what you're afraid of. It knows your insecurities. It knows your deep, dark lies. And it starts to push you away from that. It pushes you in a direction that is comfortable. The mind controls everything. So what I realized was that when I was growing up and I was 300 pounds and I got all fat and I got all insecure, I realized that my mind kept taking me in this direction. When things got uncomfortable for me, when I was facing my insecurities, I was facing my fears, my mind said, oh no, we have a tactical advantage. We need to get you, separate you from this feeling. This feeling over your life is all about feelings. We want the happy feeling. We don't want that feeling of this sucks. Why am I here? So you can't answer those questions, so you leave. I started realizing that if in that moment you can answer those questions and you are now in charge of your brain versus your brain ruling you, that's where all that stuff comes from. So the 40% rule is all of that. You get to 40%, your brain says, we're done. Let's roll, man. This is starting to get painful. This is uncomfortable. So you sit down. It's a habit. So if you know that at 40%, I'm feeling pain. At 40%, I'm feeling pain. That's 
where the 40% rule kicks in. Now it starts. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pain. My mind's saying, get out of here. Run. Flee. The fight or flight kicks in. Okay, we're done. We're not good enough. It starts telling you all these things. You start to believe it because the mind controls all. This is the time where you have to gain control back of your mind. It's okay. Let me see if I can go 45%. And once you start giving yourself more and more hope, you start realizing, okay, the mind starts to be, okay, what are you doing? We're supposed to be going right, and you're going left. You start then controlling your mind. Start finding more in yourself, and then it goes from 40% to a lot further than that. But that's the start of it, though. Get to the spot where your mind is saying stop. Wherever that is, you got to get there first, and then that's when that starts to work for you. You got to control yourself in that moment. And there you go. That's it. That's Mr. Goggins for you. That is a man that is keeping it real. The definition of it. A hard core son of a bitch. And I love his premise. I love his mindset and how he uses it. Now on to more power of the mind with Joe Dispenza. Dr. Joe Dispenza holds a Bachelor of Science degree and is a Doctor of Chiropractic. His postgraduate training includes the fields of neuroscience and neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mind-body medicine, and brain-heart coherence. As a researcher, lecturer, author, and corporate consultant, his interest lies in demystifying the mystical so that people have all the tools within their reach to make measurable changes in their lives. Is it possible to heal by thought alone without drugs or surgery? Well, the truth is, it happens more often than you might expect. Dr. Joe Dispenza shares numerous documented cases of those who reverse cancer, heart disease, depression, crippling arthritis, and even the tremors of Parkinson's disease by believing in a placebo. Similarly, Dr. Joe tells of how others have gotten sick and even died, the victims of a hex or a voodoo curse, or after being misdiagnosed with a fatal illness. Belief can be so strong that pharmaceutical companies use double and triple blind randomized studies to try to exclude the power of the mind over the body when evaluating new drugs. Dr. Joe does more than simply explore the history and psychology of the placebo effect. He asked the question, is it possible to teach the principles of the placebo and without relying on any external substance, produce the same internal changes in a person's health and ultimately in his or her life? This is why I am so interested in this man in particular is his scientific studies and diving into the placebo effect and the power of our beliefs. Now, obviously, It's been scientifically validated for much longer than Joe Dispenza has been alive or around. The placebo effect has been in use for a gold standard of testing results with double and triple blind placebo testing on drugs, pharmaceuticals, injections, all sorts of things um, forever. So since this testing has been around forever and they know the power of the mind is utterly amazing... Shouldn't we think that it's possible if we could control our thoughts, that we could control the power of healing ourselves? People are cured 
in these placebo trials. They think they got the real pharmaceutical drug and cure diseases. You know, as I read the list to you all ago, unbelievable stuff happens. The people get a sugar pill or a saline injection and a miracle happens. They think they took the drug and through the power of their own mind, they cure themselves. So in this first message, I am going to let you hear from Mr. Dispenza. He is talking about how you can live a better lifestyle through controlling your mind. As I said, 70% of the time, people live in stress, and living in stress is living in survival. Now, all organisms in nature can tolerate short-term stress. You know, a deer gets chased uh, uh, by a pack of coyotes. When it outruns the coyotes, it goes back to grazing, and the event is over. And the definition of stress is when your brain and body are knocked out of balance, out of homeostasis. The stress response is what the body innately does to return itself back to order. So you're driving down the road. Someone cuts you off, you jam on the brakes, you may give them the finger, and then you settle back down and the event is over and boom, now everything's back back to normal. But what if it's not a predator that's waiting for you uh, outside the cave, but what if it's your coworker sitting right next to you and all day long you're turning on those chemicals because they're pushing all your emotional buttons. When you turn on the stress response, and you can't turn it off, now you're headed for disease because no organism in nature can live in emergency mode for that extended period of time. It's a scientific fact that the hormones of stress downregulate genes and create disease, long-term effects. Human beings, because of the size of the neocortex, we can turn on the stress response just by thought alone. We can think about our problems and turn on those chemicals. That means, then, our thoughts could make us sick. So if it's possible that our thoughts could make us sick, is it possible that our thoughts could make us well? The answer is absolutely yes. So then what are the emotions that are connected to survival? Let's name them. Anger, aggression, hostility, hatred, competition, fear, anxiety, worry, pain, suffering, guilt, shame, unworthiness, envy, jealousy. Those are all created by the hormones of stress, and and psychology calls them normal human states of consciousness. I call those altered states of consciousness. So then we tend to remember those traumatic events more because in survival, you better be ready if it happens again. And and when the survival gene is switched on, you could have 10 really great things that happen to you in your day, and you just have one bad thing that happens, and you cannot take your attention off that bad, that, that unhappy thing because survival gene is switched on. Many years ago, after the DNA helix was discovered by Watson and Crick, uh, they said the blueprints of life, you know, all diseases are created from genes. Turns out less than 5%, more like 1% of people on the planet are born with a genetic condition like type 1 diabetes or Tay-Sachs disease or sickle cell anemia. The other 95 to 99% are created by lifestyle and by choices. You can take two identical twins, exact same genome. One dies at 51, the other one dies at 85. <laughs> same gene, different environments. So all of a sudden they said, we lied. 
That was wrong. It's not genes that create disease. It's the environment that signals the gene that creates disease. Well, okay. But that's not the whole truth, too, because you could have two people working side by side in the same factory. One gets cancer after being exposed to a carcinogenic for 25 years. Both working for 25 years, the other one has no cancer at all. So there must be some internal order that would cause one person to not get it while another one does. So is it possible then, if the environment signals the gene, and it does, and the end product of an experience in the environment is called an emotion, can you signal the gene ahead of the environment by embracing an elevated emotion? We've done the research on this where we've measured 7,500 different gene expressions in a group of people that came to an advanced event for four days. And we had them doing a seated meditation, a walking meditation, a laying down meditation, a standing meditation. And at the end of four days, just four days, the common eight genes that were upregulated, two genes to suppress cancer cells and tumor growth, two genes for neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons in response to novel experiences and learning, the gene that signals stem cells to go to damaged areas and repair them, the gene for oxidative stress was upregulated. You start seeing all these genes that are very, very healthy to cause the body to flourish. Imagine if people were doing that for three months. We also measured telomeres, the little uh, shoestrings on the end of DNA that tell us our biological age. We asked people to do the work, meditation, five out of seven days for 60 days. Measure their telomeres to determine their biological age. 60 days later, 74% of the people lengthened their telomeres. 40% significant change. 20% a very remarkable change. That means that they got a little bit of their life back. If they lengthened by 10%, they got 10% of their life back. So there you have it. Wim Hof, the superhuman, David Goggins, the beast, and Mind Power with Joe Dispenza. All of these episodes have full editions you can go back and look up for yourself. These were just excerpts put together for the best of 2020. So anyways, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for coming along for the ride. And I will see you on the next episode of Keeping It Real. Take care, folks. Keeping It Real. Do not consider these episodes as medical advice or expertise in any area. I do deconstruct some experts and their material and deliver it to you. But please do all of this at your own.